0: Hebrews chapter 3, we'll read what we preached through last week and then what we're going to look at today. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and the high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted more worthy of glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has, more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence in our boasting, in our hope. Therefore, says the Holy Spirit, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test, and they saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers." 430 years of cruel bondage came to a sudden end on the most memorable night in human history. Ten jaw-dropping evidences of the presence of the living God freshly witnessed over the last 40 days. All the waters of the land suddenly filling the air with the stench of blood. From every cooking pot and every darkened corner sprang frogs, frogs and more frogs. Gnats, irritating, biting gnats, flies swarming everywhere in everything and in every place. Then the livestock dropping in the fields, dying right where they had been grazing. Boils, painful, untreatable, debilitating boils on every inch of human flesh. And as if their cruel enemies had not already been beaten down, then came the hail, hammering every standing stock to shreds, punching gaping holes in roofs, stripping every tree of its foliage and killing both man and beast. And that followed by the spine creeping crunch of locusts chomping on what had not been destroyed by the hailstones. And as a final sliver of hope was stripped away, then came the darkness, suffocating, oppressing, I can't see my hand in front of my face, darkness. Nine challenges directly assaulting the trusted gods of Egypt. And by this time, it was the God of Israel. The score was nine for God, zero for Egypt. A little bit reverse of the Huskers, I might say. Yesterday was a good day. We didn't lose. It's amazing. (laughs) And there was yet one more battle. Who was this God who has the power over both life and death? Who could slay the many and still preserve the chosen? With the blood of the lamb painted on the door frames of their house, the slaves of 400 years sat quietly in the peace as the night slowly filled with the wailing of mothers and fathers who awakened to discover that every firstborn son of an Egyptian home had on the very same night died. Finally, the stubborn back of Pharaoh had been broken, and with arms filled with precious goods and livestock sufficient to both feed them on their journey as well as populate their dreamed-of farms, the sons of Abraham began their journey home. 600,000 men plus their wives and their children miraculously delivered from a multi-generational slavery. With a three-month journey before them to the glorious country long romanticized around late-night fires, its wonder and beauty expanded with every generation's relating of the story. The homeland of their forefathers finally soon to be their own reality. Suddenly, the wisdom of the man who had brought about their deliverance became a source of ridicule. Moses led the fleeing slaves directly into a dead end. Unscalable walls on both sides and an acrossable Red Sea before them, and the reinvigorated, murderously angry army of Egypt hot on their trail, they were suddenly in a no wind circumstance. Impossible, that is, if your God is too small. But with the pillar of fire before them and the dark cloud of protection behind them, they quickly walked across the suddenly dry pathway through the sea and cheered as the dreaded army floundered and drowned in the very spot where they themselves had been delivered. Exodus 14 summarizes it this way, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses goes on to say in Exodus chapter 15, they had this great celebration. They're singing the hymn of Moses. They sang together and the ladies danced singing. Sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. As the writer to the Hebrews, this homeless group of Jesus lovers living in the shadow of the tyrannical throne of Caesar are beginning to lose their grip and their hope on their faith in Jesus. The apostle, the writer, sends them encouragement and rebuke exhortation from a thousand-year-old hymn, hymn 95 of the Psalms. Turn there, if you would. They sang this hymn every Sabbath day as a call to worship in the synagogues. They would begin their worship, and the people, as soon as they hear the second half of it, said when they're reading this letter to this congregation, they think in terms of the whole hymn. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth, and the heights of the mountains are his also the sea is his for he made it and his hands formed the dry land oh come let us worship and bow down let us kneel before the lord our maker for he is our god and we are the people of his pasture we are the sheep of his hand he that hymn begins with what is declared in chapter 3 verse 1 therefore holy brothers you who share in a heavenly calling consider Jesus worship begins with making much of Christ and that's the purpose of the first half of the hymn but the second half of that hymn that they would sing at the beginning of worship gatherings every Sabbath is a warning about a hardening of the heart and he uses the nation of Israel as a role model of what not to be and so the author quotes it here in Hebrews 3:7. He, he gives these general warnings against apostasy, which simply means to turn your back upon or to walk willfully away from. It's like leaving God behind and going and finding your significance and your security in someone or something other than. So he said, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, notice he gives credit for the inspiration of Psalm 95, a thousand-year-old hymn, To the work of the Holy Spirit today if you hear his voice. As you're going through the scripture here over the next few chapters notice how many times he uses the word today. Now the meaning of the word today is not necessarily a 24-hour period of time. But i think it's more specific than just simply this season of time between the ascension of jesus to the father's right hand and his promised ultimate return it's it's more than just this age of grace this period of church history but it is the urgency of the moment today now if you hear his voice you see some of you today will probably hear the good news that there is a savior who will rescue you from your sin and save you from an eternal separation from the God who created you and he will deliver you simply on the basis of your faith and trust in him alone and you'll hear that if the if the spirit will keep me out of the way and you'll leave here having made a decision if the voice of God is heard there is an obligation to respond. So the exhortation every Sabbath day was, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. The question is, how do you harden the heart? You see, the heart becomes hard when you hear, where do you hear the voice of God? In the word of God. He speaks through this which he has inspired so whenever you're listening to a podcast or whenever you're listening to an online live stream message from the scriptures or whenever you're reading the scriptures you are hearing the voice of God or like we say some people say well I just need to hear the audible voice of God I've got a secret for you all you gotta do is read your Bible out loud and you got it this is if you hear God's voice through the word be careful you don't harden your heart what does that mean you see a heart becomes hard not all at once but one thin callous at a time. Every time you hear with clarity or there's a conviction of the Spirit in the heart that God has a word to speak to you, every time you say no or you say later, you add a callous layer to the heart until finally you come to the place where you can no longer sense the voice of the Spirit and your opportunity is lost. He puts an urgency. Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Now we go back to Psalm 95, it's the psalm that he is citing. And when they hear this, they immediately in their minds go back because they they sang it every Saturday, they understood it. The end of verse 7, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah. Meribah, written in the Marginal Bible, Exodus 17. And Psalm 78, verse 18, it literally means it is testing. No sooner had they crossed the Red Sea on dry land. No sooner had they seen their perennial enemies destroyed in the same waters that they themselves had been delivered from. No sooner had they just witnessed the ten jaw-dropping miracles of the plagues in Egypt and they come across the Red Sea they hang a sharp right heading down to Mount Sinai and suddenly now when they once had too much water now they don't have enough water and they begin to grumble and complain and say did you just simply bring us out here to die in the wilderness today if you hear his voice as it was at Meribah when the children of Israel had the living example of God's presence and power amongst them they tested God by disbelieving him, or on the day of Massa in the wilderness, this is Numbers 14, and it's the day of the act of rebellion where God said that he was going to lead them into the land of promise, and they sent 12 spies in, and just like every good Baptist congregational meeting, 10 said we can't do it, two said they can, they went with the majority, and they, they, they did it, and God said for that cause, for that act of disbelief, you will all die in the wilderness that's what the author is saying on the day of the testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and they saw my works verse 9 for 40 years that 40 it it appears over and over in the scripture I decided at noon yesterday we just didn't have time for it today to trace it down it appears 146 times in the scripture It's 40 years or it's 40 days and night. The 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. The 40 days and night that Moses is on the holy mountain alone with God. The 40 days and night that Elijah goes without eating as he waits upon the Lord. The 40 days and night that Jesus spent in the wilderness being tempted at the beginning of his ministry. The 40. It's a significant word in the book of Hebrews. Mark it in your memory. They saw my works for 40 years. Every morning, they got out of bed, and breakfast was served. In fact, the meal for the whole day was already prepared. They went out, and they picked it up the first day, and they gave it its name, manna, which simply means, what is it? But whatever it was, I can only imagine the cookbook productions going 101 ways to cook manna and after you finally run out of things to do. But for 40 years, every day except on the Sabbath, they went out and on the on Friday before the Sabbath, God said, just pick up twice as much and it won't spoil over the weekend. God provided. Every time a military came against them, God fought their battle on their behalf. Every time their livestock and their children became dehydrated in the wilderness, God provided Water, every time they had a need, God met their need. And he said, "Yet for 40 years they saw my works, I was provoked. Some of your translations say I was angered with that generation." The interesting thing about the 40 is is that in scriptural numbers, 40 also marks the length of a generation. So for a generation, I said, they always go astray in their heart that's the issue notice as you're reading the text this one in chapter 4 chapter 5 how many times he refers to the heart verse 8 do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion verse 10 they always go astray in their heart verse 12 lest there be any of you evil unbelieving heart notice at verse 15 today if you hear his voice do not harden your heart. He'll repeat it again in the chapters to come. You see, the real issue of faith and following Christ is a matter of the heart, not the circumstances. It's what's going on in here, not what's going on out there. And so he said, they always go astray in their heart, for they have not known my ways. Over and over that term ways, if you read the book of Proverbs, when I took it through the college students through that, I kept having them marked a number of times you used the path or the way or the road. There is a there is a way that God leads in. Why is it that they didn't understand God's ways? It's simply that they had not listened to God's Word. God's ways are evident. He's revealed them clearly. He doesn't have some mysterious thing where he hides his intention or his purposes. They simply have not known my ways because they have not listened to my word. So I swore in my wrath. His anger is provoked against a people that he has been incredibly generous and gracious to because when hard times came, they looked to others or other things rather than to the living God. So he said, they shall not enter my rest. Now, to understand the meaning of rest here, come back next week. Pastor Brad's going to preach the first half of chapter 4. Then Gordon Opp's going to come in and clean up the mess that Brad makes for the first half. He'll preach the last half of chapter 4 for us again in the following week. But what does it mean for here? The rest simply means to have entered into the land long promised and to settle in comfortably enjoying the blessing of things they had not earned living in houses they had not built and harvesting crops they had not planted and experiencing the protection of God against their residential enemies now the nation of Israel never experienced rest in the land because when they went into the land they rebelled and they disobeyed God and they did not remove the enemy that he told them and so there was never actually peace during the years that they were there which means there is yet coming a rest that we can all prosper in so well, he goes on to say then now this verse 14 we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end last week we closed with verse 6 where he uses this but if christ is faithful over god's house as a son and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and are boasting in hope he gives this double warning again that that only those who endure in their faith are saved in the end but he is not saying that the way to be certain of your eternal destiny your eternal salvation is to endure what he is saying is those who endure endure because they are secure in their destination. So uh, one one of the great old preachers of the past, Harry Ironside at Moody Memorial Church, says this, the if in these verses is a test of profession. It is very possible then, and it still is, that men might mingle with a Christian company and find a certain amount of gladness and joy springing from an intellectual acquaintance with Christianity, who after all are not born of God continuance proves the reality of your confession so what he gives us then is personal instruction as to how to see to it that my heart does not become hardened the first way to prevent that and again as the author is speaking i'll remind you again there's there's three audiences in mind the first are those who have understood all those Old Testament portraits, principles, and promises, and they they draw the line from those, and they see, yes, that is fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. He is the Christ, and he is the one that offers us deliverance and eternal life. But things have gotten hard. Following Jesus was more challenging and difficult, less enjoyable than they'd expected it to be. And so they're beginning to lose their grip on their faith. The second audience are those who, as Harry Arnside says, intellectually assent. Yes, I can see that. You've shown me how all of these pictures in the Old Testament point to Jesus. But the reality is, is that if I bow the knee of my heart, one, it'll take a sense of humility that I need someone to save me because I can't save myself. I also kind of trust the king on the throne of my heart, which is me, and I don't want to step off and have him seated there, or the cost is just too high. I've looked around and I can see that following Jesus is a, is a difficult road and we are, we are destined to many afflictions along the way and I don't want to do that. But the third one are those individuals who say, you're, you're starting to make sense to me. It's, it's beginning, I'm beginning to understand that all of this in the Old Testament is fulfilled in this person of Jesus and there's life and so he's writing to those three. When he uses the expression today, if you hear his voice, he's speaking to all three. If you're that individual that is starting to say, you know, I, I, I kind of said it, and regrettably, as old as I am, there have been so many who started so well and fell and failed before the finish line. But there are also those who are just content to continue to add notes to the margin of their study Bibles to continue to take great pride in their increasing knowledge of the scriptures but their heart has not yet been converted and then there's those and probably some of you are here this morning saying you know this thing is starting to make sense to me his word to all three is today if you hear his voice don't harden your heart first thing he tells us in the personal exhortation is you need to guard your own heart verse 12 Take care, brothers. Now, when he uses brothers here, and as you're going through Hebrews, you have to constantly ask yourself, what does he mean by brothers? Early on in verse one, he called them holy brothers. He's talking about those who are in the family of God by faith in Jesus. Here, I believe he is talking as Paul does in Romans 9, 10, 11 about brothers who are Hebrews. That is his Jewish brothers. Take care, Jewish brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living god there is only one living god he has been validated and proven over and over again he talks in first thessalonians chapter one about the report of the thessalonians saying the report of you is that you have turned from idols which are lifeless they have eyes they can't see they have ears they can't hear they have mouths that they can't speak You have turned from those idols to serve the true and the living God. He is warning them here, don't turn away from this one true and living God. Guard your own heart. It's a personal responsibility. There's this interesting tension in the scriptures. And we have a tendency to want to fall off on one side of the thing or the other. And that is the question is, is salvation the sovereign work of a sovereign God by grace? And the answer is yes. But the other side of the question is, is there any responsibility on behalf of humanity who has heard the invitation to faith in Christ to respond in faith and believe? And the answer is yes. And it seems to be a contradiction of terms, but it's only a contradiction in our minds, not in God's mind. And he is saying here, today, be careful that there is not in you an evil, unbelieving heart. The exhortation is to be constantly aware of the condition of your soul. Am I more responsive and more enthusiastic about hearing from God today than I was a year ago? Or or did the whole COVID shutdown thing just kind of give me other alternatives to that and it's no longer that important to me. In fact, hearing the scriptures taught just kind of puts me to sleep it's like I'll own that one but it's just that I don't find my heart longing to hear the voice of the spirit anymore his first instruction is guard your own heart protect it from those things that will dull it or he talks in Matthew 13 that there's that seed that fell on the traffic road and the birds came and they ate it right away Some of the seed fell into shallow ground and it grew up really quickly, but as soon as it got hot, it had no roots and it just caved in and it disappeared. And then there's the most typical one, and that is the seed that fell amongst the thorns and the weeds. And as those things grew up, it began to choke it out. We call it the three weeds of worry, wealth, and whoopee. There's just other things to do. Guard your heart against those things that would steal from you the ability to hear and respond to the voice. And then secondly, take care of your brother's heart. Or as he'll say in chapter 10 when we get there, that we should not forsake the assembly of ourselves together like it's become the habit of many. And even more as we see the day approaching because we need to encourage one another, prod one another on. So in verse 13 here he says, exhort one another every day as long as it is called Today, there's our word again that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We owe each other a desperate love that protects us from going astray. the, The community of faith is as essential as the individual person of faith. You have a personal responsibility for your soul, and now you have a responsibility for the souls of others. To exhort one another simply means to reprove and rebuke if necessary. But it also means to come alongside and with that. Chuck Swindoll says that the Christian army is the only army that shoots its own wounded. And, and when someone has fallen and they have failed, it, we, we have a tendency to just wipe our hands of it, criticize them, judge them, and walk away. But Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 said, we're to bear one another's burdens. We're to come alongside. That's what he's talking about here. Exhort one another every day. So that, that's why small groups and Bible studies and Christian friendships and relationships are so important from Sunday to Sunday is a long time. And by by next Saturday afternoon, we're all going to be so beat up by living in this decaying world that we, we, we start to lose our grip on the things that really matter for eternity. So he said, you exhort each other day by day, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened, that, that's one of the things, by the deceitfulness of of sin. What's the deceitfulness of sin? Well that is that Satan always lies about what sin costs or what it rewards. Linda and I have been married for 53 plus years. I, I was taught very early on that for birthdays and anniversaries don't buy anything that plugs in. So I, I did find out from my granddaughters that if I bought her a really bougie coffee maker that plugged in she would love me for that. So we're working on it. But Mostly, I found out that jewelry does the thing. But have you ever gone to the jewelry store and you noticed that they go to Voss Lighting, they buy these special light bulbs and everything so that when you're looking at that stuff, and they always put the tray underneath and they got this glass and they stand there and you make a fool out of yourself trying to read the price tag. You're just trying to get everywhere and it's under there and it's by design. They want you to look at it, fall in love with it so that before they expose the price tag and you find out you can't afford it, you're already in. That's what deception of sin is. It it offers you what you cannot afford to pay. So he says to us is that when we see a brother or a sister beginning to go down a path and embrace the things and we go, you know, you won't like the price tag of that when you get to the end of this road. And we care enough to come and do what we can to stop them, to turn them back, to pick them up when they've fallen. Put our arm to exhort means to put your arm around and walk with them. So we owe it to each other and then verse 14 says and we need to commit ourselves to finishing well for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end it simply means that periodically you need to go back and remember what it was like that day when the spirit of God removed the veil from the eyes of your heart And you not only understood what an unsavable, ugly, rejected sinner you are, but suddenly you found out that there is a Savior who loves you, knowing all of that about you. And not because you cleaned your act up, but because he took you exactly as you were, and he cleaned you up. He wants you to go back to that original confidence that we had, that there is nowhere else to go and no one else to turn to but Jesus. Remind yourself restore your confidence day by day firm to the end now he gives a diagnosis in verse 15 of how a heart becomes hardened notice verse 15 today here it is again urgency of the moment if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion learn a lesson from your ancestors This hymn that's a thousand years old is being taught to us today, 2,000 years later, and it's as appropriate and timely today as it was to them. Guard your hearts, lest there be in you a hardening. How does a heart harden? First of all, it begins with disbelief. Questioning in the midst of my circumstances whether God is enough. It moves from disbelief to disdain. If you read the story of the children of Israel, They despise God and they say, can he really deliver us? Can he really provide for us? The gods of Egypt provided better for their people than that. And then it leads to disobedience. And then he begins, as a good Socratic teacher or rabbinical instructor would do, by asking six questions and he couples them in three groups of pairs. And he begins with this, the question in verse 16. So who were those who heard and yet rebelled? So taking this thousand-year-old hymn, this call to worship, and talking about how God refused to let them go into the land of promise and experience its rest, he asked the question, who were those? And he answers it, was it not those who left Egypt led by Moses? Isn't it those who personally experienced The jaw-dropping wonders of God's power and grace that took on every one of the noted gods of Egypt and defeated them in their own territory? Isn't that the generation he's talking about? So the principle that he comes to is simply this. Many begin strong, but very few finish well. It's probably one of the saddest reflections or the number of people that, that were planted on shallow soil that in the early days, you're so excited. You're, they're exactly the kind of kid every youth group wants to produce. It's exactly the kind of brother or sister every church wants to have. But then three, four years in, suddenly they're gone. They've disappeared. And in many cases, they've totally and completely renounced their faith. Many begin strong, but few finish well everyone who died in the desert began with great intentions so he asked this question with whom was he provoked for 40 years here's that 40 again who was it that angered him that irritated him and he answers it with a second question was it not those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness it was the very ones that had experienced his provision his grace his power his kindness those are the ones that were dying in the wilderness the principle taught is simply this great spiritual privilege is not a guarantee of a faith that endures they were eyewitnesses they were personal recipients of God's amazing provision they experienced daily blessings and yet when it came time to trust him for the unseen they couldn't even obey him in the arena of the scene he had been faithful but they were faithless, so he raises a third set of questions. To whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? He had called them out of Egypt to deliver them to the land of promise, to be their God and to give them a, almost, as it were, a paradise here on earth, and yet he wouldn't let them enter in. And his answer is, was it not to those who were disobedient? Literally, the principle is that unbelief will always lead to rebellion. So you going back to the call to worship in psalm 95 7 to 11 and he starts by saying consider christ he is the king he is the god over all universe worship him and then he comes consider israel and their horrible failure in exodus 17 just days after the crossing of the red sea on dry land and the deliverance they begin to doubt god and challenge and question him because they don't have water to drink and he gives them water Psalm 78 repeats the same story. The second great experience is when they finally made their way to Kadesh Barnea and, and God sends them into the land and they send the 12 spies out and 10 of them come back and convince the people. They said, man, it is a great place. There's no question about that. But I got to tell you what, those people are tall as giants. Their armies are so much stronger. We'll just, we're just slaves wandering pilgrims in the wilderness. There's no way we can defeat them. Their cities have walls around them like United States presidents with walls around their cabins on the beach. They were like, there's no way we can take this. And Joshua and Caleb were saying, but God's on our side, we can. And the congregational vote was is that they kill in silence Joshua and Caleb. They rebelled and God said that those children that you said will die in the wilderness, they'll go into the land of promise, but you yourselves will never enter. And they spent 38 years dying in the wilderness in Deuteronomy 132 Moses in the book of Deuteronomy says his, his final messages it's five messages in that entire book so when we finally get to that place where I'm done here and all that I hope that I get five final messages and you endure long enough so I can preach as long a sermons as he did but we're going to rent the place for the whole day that time and you can just stay and endure it he's like he begins by saying remember back in the day 40 years ago God brought you to the threshold of the land of the promise But you could not believe him enough to obey. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Probably the best summary in the New Testament of the lessons to be learned from the children of Israel is in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We read, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did in 23 thousand fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. We must not grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages is come, verse twelve. Therefore, application, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. It's a text of warning and then he wraps it up. Notice in verse 19. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. It's the 40 year issue. The children of Israel for 40 years from leaving Egypt until finally the last of a generation died in the wilderness to enter the land of the promise. I think the author is writing to a church 40 years after Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father and promised to return. And he's raising the question, do you have the kind of faith that can endure the trials and testing of your pilgrimage for four decades? Or will you too, like the children of Israel, turn and walk away? So the question is asked in the text, What is the great sin of Israel? It was not their worship of idols, even though God hates idols. It is not their acts of sexual immorality, even though sexual immorality is an abomination in the eyes of God. It wasn't even their rebellion against Moses, even though Moses was the intimate friend of God. The greatest sin of Israel was simply this, unbelief. They did not believe. For their unbelief, he said, you will not enter into my rest. One author put it this way. Unbelief will make a small hill into an uncrossable mountain and a rippling brook into an uncrossable sea. The circumstances will overwhelm you if you don't believe. So God's prescription for spiritual endurance is this. When you hear God's word, heed God's word. So if you're one of those three, if you're that individual who has been following Jesus, but you're starting to lose encouragement and hope, you're contemplating an exit ramp from the faith. If you heard God speak to your heart today, heed his word, hang on. If you're that individual that says, I I, I get it, it all makes sense, but the price is too high. When you leave here today, You will have made your decision. You you will have placed another callus on the skin of your soul. You will have hardened your heart. If you're that individual that is saying, can you explain it to me a little more? Then let me encourage you to let the Spirit of God lead you to Christ. What's the prescription? When you hear God's word, heed God's word. Secondly, consider continually the condition of, of your own heart be a good garden keeper notice when weeds begin to grow up whether it's anxiety and worry or whether it's wealth or whether it's fun and pleasure whoopee i was quite amazed to hear that they canceled the halfsie marathon today i've got a lot of people out running in the rain made no sense to me at all but are there things that I find more attractive than Jesus? Examine the condition of your heart. Third, be a faithful encourager to others. If God has given you grace and wisdom and built in relationships, don't hesitate to love someone enough to say, can I, can I walk with you? Can I encourage you? But last of all, when challenges come, and they will, always measure your circumstances By the size of your God. When you become discouraged, it's because your God is too small. Psalm 95. He is the great God, and he is the great king. He holds the depths of the earth and the heights of the mountains in his hands. He created the waters, and he created the earth. Your God is a great God. 600,000 men walked out of Egypt as free men with great expectations. Only two of those 600,000 entered the homeland of their fathers. At the rate of 90,000 per day, they fell into their sandy graves. Only those who believed and obeyed experienced the rest of the land of promise. So the question is this, if you will not trust the Lord, in whom? Or in what will you trust? Is he enough?